0: And welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. This is episode 13 and today we're asking the question who was the mysterious Melchizedek in the Old Testament? Was it actually Jesus? We're also going to be reading through Genesis 14, Nehemiah chapter 3, Matthew chapter 13, and Acts chapter 13 following the Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan. As of today, we are three chapters into Nehemiah, and we barely talked about him. I hope to rectify that in an upcoming episode of the podcast, because uh, our buddy Nehemiah does not deserve that kind of treatment. Fascinating guy. But for today, we are going to begin by reading Genesis chapter 14, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. In those days, King Amrithel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elessar, king Katerlamer of Elam and king Tidal of Gollum waged war against king Bera of Sodom, king Bersha of Gomorrah, king Shinab of Adma, and king Shimeber of Zeboyim, as well as the king Bela, that is, Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Sidim Valley, the Dead Sea. They were subject to kader for twelve years, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, kader and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavah Kiriathim, and the Horites in the mountains of Ser as far as El Paran by the wilderness. Then they came back to invade in Mishpet, which is the Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboimim, and the king of Bela, Zoar, went out and lined up for battle in the Sidim valley against king Keterlamer of Elam, king Tidal of Goyim, king Amraphel of Shinar, and king Arioch of Elesser, four kings against five. Now the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the food, and, they, and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. One of the survivors came and told Abram the Hebrew who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Ashkal and the brother of Anir. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Chobah to the north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Cedar Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the sheveh Valley, that is, the king's valley, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself." But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Anir, Eshcol, and Mamre, they can take their share." When I was a kid, I thought the Bible was boring. I grew up in church and uh, barely was able to listen to the sermons. Not really sure why I was diagnosed with ADD way back in the day. So maybe that had something to do it. But but like I said, I don't remember why I thought the the Bible was boring. It's possible... It's because of passages like the beginning of our passage today, and passages like we find in Ezra, which are just long lists of names that don't make any sense. Now, I will say, those names and and such are very, very important for historians, but I realize that knowing who Anir or Cater lamer is for us is not particularly spiritually edifying. So we're not going to focus on that too much today. But I'll tell you, I also thought Lord of the Rings was boring in fourth or fifth grade, and I didn't grasp it at all. And my view of the Bible and my view of Lord of the Rings, the book, both of those views, I would say, is childish rubbish now. I mean, the Lord of the Rings is one of the best works of fiction ever written. And when you actually really get into the Bible... You see it's chock full of fascinating and interesting things, and this passage is a great example of that. Military strategists and historians should actually study this passage a little bit because it's one of the first incidents in all of recorded history that features something like advanced war tactics and what we would now call guerrilla warfare. Considering that military tactics were uh, much more conventional than this during the Revolutionary War and even part of the Civil War, I kind of find it fairly interesting that Abram, in a lot of ways, was thousands of years ahead of his time in terms of strategy. Think about it. He divided his forces into units and attacked the far superior forces of King cader at night. That's some military wisdom right there. That's pretty clever. Using the clever tactic of a night attack with his army split into those groups, he succeeded in rescuing Lot and all of the other people that Cater-Lammer had taken prisoner, and recovering all the plunder seized by the partnership of those five kings. And here's where it even gets more interesting. Because on the way back from this tremendous military victory, Abram encounters a mysterious figure who brings him some bread and wine and blesses him now this guy is Melchizedek and Abram gives him a tithe or a tenth of all the spoils of the battle never since then for thousands of years people have speculated about who exactly this Melchizedek was Charles Spurgeon said this king and priest None other of the house of David, save our Lord Jesus Christ, could claim the union of these two offices. In Christ, we have a king and a priest, as also with Melchizedek of old, a great type of Jesus. Now, C.S. Lewis also wrote a little bit about Melchizedek because he's a prominent figure in literature, and Lewis was a professor of literature, and in a letter to a Mrs. Johnson, he Refused to identify Melchizedek, but this is what he said. Clearly from a passage in Hebrews, there's something very special about Melchizedek, but I don't know what what it is. There's lots to find out here and hereafter, isn't there? I do agree with that. Uh, I've got a lot of questions going into heaven at some point that I'm going to be asking, and I don't have answers to most of my questions. This one, however might be a little clearer than Spurgeon and Lewis uh, might have thought. At least I think so. We'll see. Uh, One of the things Spurgeon said about our friend Melchizedek, he said... We will not enlarge upon the story of Melchizedek, now this was during a sermon in, I believe, 1884, nor discuss the question as to who he was. It's near enough for us to believe that he was one who worshipped God after the primitive fashion, a believer in God such as Job was in the land of Uz, one of the world's grey fathers who had kept faithful to the Most High God, He combined in his own person the kingship and the priesthood, a conjunction by no means unusual in the first ages. Of this man we know very little, and it is partly because we know so little of him that he is all the better type of our Lord, of whom we may inquire, who shall declare his generation. The very mystery which hangs about Melchizedek serves to set forth the mystery of the person of our divine Lord Jesus. Quote, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, he abides as a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, and to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. So, Spurgeon says that Melchizedek was a type of Jesus, a a foreshadowing, a figure, a similar type of person, I guess is what you would say. Um C.S. Lewis says it's a bit of a mystery who Melchizedek was, but I actually think when you read the book of Hebrews, which talks fairly extensively about Melchizedek, you have got to come away with the viewpoint that Melchizedek is more than merely a human priest king. And so what I want to do, I want to submit it for your approval. Um, take it or leave it. It's not a hugely important theological thing. It's definitely interesting, but but uh, clever men may disagree here. Uh, seven reasons I believe that Melchizedek was actually a Christophany which is an Old Testament manifestation or appearance of Jesus himself. So these are seven uh, reasons I believe that indicate this that Melchizedek and Jesus are the same person. Reason number one, his name. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He was also the king of Salem or Shalom, which is the Hebrew word, which means peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. That sounds... Sort of like Jesus. Now, of course, this isn't this is not persuasive. It's just a slight bit of evidence. The best evidence is reason number seven, but reason number two: Melchizedek, as Spurgeon has pointed out, was a priest and a king. Now, this was specifically forbidden by God, and I don't know if you remember King Isaiah, but uh, he was the king mentioned in Isaiah chapter six when Isaiah sees seraphim flying at the throne of God. King Isaiah tried to be both king and priest, and God struck him with leprosy for doing so, because in God's eyes, a human being cannot be both king and priests. In the entirety of the Bible, there are only two king-priests that are legitimate. One is Jesus, the other is Melchizedek. Reason number three, Melchizedek served wine and bread to Abraham. That seems a bit on the nose, doesn't it? It doesn't have to be a nod towards Jesus serving wine and bread to the disciples. The New Testament never draws that parallel. But in my mind, that certainly seems kind of significant, doesn't it? Number four, as mentioned in Psalms and Hebrews, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron, just like all the other priests. Consider why in the world would Jesus, who was God's son and God Himself, be of the order of any human priesthood? That kind of seems fairly absurd, doesn't it? It's very strange that Jesus would be the uh, a member of an order of priests that is founded by a human being. Reason number five: the writer of Hebrews is in discussing Melchizedek and Jesus in depth and in parallel, seems to go out of his way to make the case that Melchizedek was significant and great Which is fairly odd considering that the Old Testament devotes just a few verses to Melchizedek. But think about these, this, these verses from Hebrews chapter seven, verse four. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. Hebrews seven verse four. I'm sorry, seven verse six. But one without this lineage, lineage collected a tenth or a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. The obvious implication there is Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Without a doubt, says the writer of Hebrews. That seems very significant. Abraham is this massive figure in in the history of the Jews, and here we have the writer of Hebrews saying, "Well." Is, you know, as great and as important as Abraham was, he was obviously inferior to Melchizedek. Reason number six. Perhaps the primary function of a priest is to be a mediator between humans and God. And there are thousands of priests that serve that function as a mediator. But still, Paul could say in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one priest like Jesus who reconciles God and humanity. Only one mediator like him, says Paul. Now, considering how the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus and Melchizedek in parallel, literally the only two priests in history that are in the order of Melchizedek, it would seem that these two priests are actually the same priest with different names. Now consider, uh, if you will, the different names given to Jesus in the Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah said he would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom, or Prince of Peace, if you will. Now, those first six reasons— I think they're pretty important. I think they're fairly weighty, but they don't convince me altogether. And if that was the only evidence in Scripture that tied Jesus and Melchizedek together, I would probably stand with Spurgeon and Lewis and say, well, that's pretty interesting, but not definitive about who Melchizedek was. However there is one more very, very significant and difficult to explain verse in the book of Hebrews about Melchizedek. And I can't imagine how that description of him could possibly be anybody but Jesus himself. That is Hebrews 7 verse 3. This is a description of Melchizedek. Listen carefully. Without father, mother, or genealogy, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so, look, there's really only two options here. Either the writer of Hebrews was simply exaggerating a lot, and I need to emphasize that, a lot lot, a big exaggeration, or Melchizedek was an appearance of Jesus. How could a human being not have a father or mother? How could a human human being not have a genealogy or genetic relatives? How could a human being not have a beginning? How could a human being be immortal and not die? How could a human being be a priest forever? The writer of Hebrews makes it crystal clear in chapter 7 verses 23 and 24 that all the other priests prior to Jesus have died. He says, now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. In other words, there's been a lot of Levitical priests because priests keep dying and they have to be replaced. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Now, that's talking about Jesus. He remains forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. But way back in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek also remains a priest forever. Now, humans don't do that. It's impossible. So again, it's either massive exaggeration or Melchizedek is somebody more than simply a human being. And I think it's very clear scripturally that that this is an actual manifestation of Jesus himself. Now, I'm not the first one that's identified that. I'm not even the 10,000th person that's identified that. For years and years, theologians and Bible scholars have talked about these so-called Christophanies, these appearances in the Old Testament of beings that seem to be divine and aren't named Jesus Christ because they wouldn't be, but... They seem to be like him. For instance, right before the battle of Jericho, Joshua encounters a being who identifies himself as the commander of the armies of the Lord. Now, Joshua bows down in terror to worship this being. And unlike every other encounter with an angel, that being does not command Joshua to stop which seems to indicate that perhaps this is a divine being. Perhaps this is a Christophany too. Now that's not guaranteed Christophany. Um, I don't think there's as much evidence for, for that situation with Joshua as there is for this with Melchizedek, but it, there's other incidences as well in the Old Testament and we'll talk about them as we get to them. For now, that's enough of that discussion. Let's move on to Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib, and they and next to them, Zakur, son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They built it with fi- beams, and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimath, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, son of Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Baana, made repairs. And beside them, the Tequites made repairs. But their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. Joyada, son of Pasea, and Meshulam, son of Besodea, repaired the old gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Melatiah the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Meronathite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Azaziel... A uh, son of Harhiah the goldsmith made repairs, and next to him Hananiah son of the perfumer made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to him, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. After them, Jediah, son of Haramoth, made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hatush, the son of Hashabaniah, made repairs. Malkijah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Pahath-Moab, made repairs to another section, as well as to the tower of the ovens. Beside him, Shalem, son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars, and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate. We'll be talking about the dung gate on an upcoming episode, so hold on to your hats for that. Verse 14, Malkajai, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-hachorim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Shalon, son of Kolhazah, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and roofed it. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shelah near the king's garden as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Asbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool in the house of the warriors. Next to him, the levites made repairs under Rehum son of Bani behind beside him Hashabiah ruler of half of the district of Keilah made repairs for his district and after him their fellow levites made repairs under Benui son of Henadden ruler of half the district of Keilah next to him Ezer son of Jeshua ruler of Mizpah made repairs to another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle After him, Baruch, son of Zabai, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest Eliashib. Beside him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakuz, made repairs to another section from the door of Eliashib's house to the end of his house. And next to him, the priests from the surrounding areas made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azariah, son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, son of Hanadad, made repairs to another section, from the house of Azariah to the Angle and the corner. Palal, son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the angle and tower that juts out from the king's upper palace by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Pediah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from a point opposite the great tower that juts out, as far as the wall of Ophel. Each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite his own house. After them Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs outside his house, and beside him Shemiah, son of Shechaniah, guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph made repairs to another section. After them Meshulam, son of Barakiah, made repairs opposite his room. Next to him Malkaja, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the upstairs room on the corner, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs between the upstairs room uh, on the corner and the sheep gate. Matthew chapter thirteen verse one. On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, "'Consider the sower who went out to sow.' As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep.' But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. When the disciples came up and asked him, Why are you speaking to them in parables? Jesus answered Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes, because they do see, and your ears, because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but didn't see them, to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. So listen. To the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. When the plant sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. "'So, do you want us to go and pull them up?' the servants asked him. "'No,' he said. "'When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. "'Let both grow together until the harvest. "'At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, "'Gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, "'but collect the wheat in my barn.' He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into fifty pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables, and he did not tell them anything without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him and said, Explain to us the uh, parable of the weeds in the field. And he replied, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he finds one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish, and when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers, but threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil people from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? They answered him, Yes. Therefore he said to them, Every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. When Jesus had finished teaching these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and say, said, Where did this man get wisdom in these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Acts chapter 13. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned and Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God, but Elymas the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elymas and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then, when he saw what had happened, the proconsul believed, because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers... If you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. And this, after this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him, I have found David, son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out my will. From this man's descendants, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, as John was completing his mission, he said, "'Who do you think I am? I'm not the one, but one is coming after me, and I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals on his feet.'" Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that the word of salvation has been sent. Since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him, though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, "'You are my son, today I have become your father.' As to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way— I will give you the sure and holy promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purposes in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his father's, and decayed but the one god did raise up did not decay therefore let it be known to you brothers and sisters that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you and to you who are listening to this podcast Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe even if someone were to explain it to you. As they were leaving, the people urged them to speak about these matters the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking with them and urging them to continue in the grace of God. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you at first, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the prominent God fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is the word of the Lord in a great, encouraging, and exciting place to stop for the day. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back tomorrow, Lord willing and Lord enabling, with another episode of the Bible Reading Podcast. Please be sure to share this with your friends, and let me encourage you to continue on in daily Bible reading. It will bear much fruit in your life. Good night, good afternoon, and Godspeed to you.